make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast. So happy to be here today with my special guest, Claudia Boutot, a seasoned industry insider. Claudia Boutot is founder of Red Raven Studio, a boutique publishing strategy, marketing, and literary agency. Her vision contributed to the success of more than 120 New York Times bestsellers. She held leadership positions at a variety of major publishing houses, including HarperCollins, Workman, and St. Martin's Press. You can always find out more about her and what she's up to and work with her at redravenstudio.com. Welcome, Claudia. Oh, thank you, Kaya. What a thrill to be here. It's an honor. <laughs> I'm so, so happy. excited. I you. love what you're doing, and I'm so excited to meet you and your students. Yes, we are recording live in front of my students today because the Entertainment Business School is in session, so it's always really great for the students to get to have a Q&A with the guests after we finish recording the interview. And uh, it's just a delight to be here with you and get to know you uh, on this deeper level because you and I have worked together and we met uh, when you were at HarperCollins. And you know, just to let everyone know where we met, Claudia is the one who really shepherded my first novel written in the ashes through HarperCollins and found where it belonged <laughs> and um, brought me in with an imprint called Harper Legend there. And it was really her, her vision and her excitement about the book that made it happen. She was a champion of that novel and I remain forever grateful to her for her visionary leadership inside of it. Well, that was easy for me because it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I'll never forget the moment we met. And me <laughs> I was like ready to burst. I think I was like, you know, 39 weeks pregnant or something. I could like, I barely, they put me on a stool. We were on a panel and they had stools for the, for the panel. I was like, oh my God, if I get up, I won't get down. How am I going to get up? <laughs> And uh, that was so great. And then you heard about my book while we were talking on the panel. And then we chatted afterwards and I gave you a copy and you were like, I'll read it. And I was like, I'll never hear from her again. 
And uh, like 48 hours, you got back to me. You're like, oh, I read it and I've already finished with it and I loved it. And I was like, what? Like that never happens. You go through so many no's as a writer, so many no's before you get that yes. And you were my really big yes. So yeah, super, super deep love for you in my heart and gratitude because I feel like you're the first person who really saw me and got the writing where not everyone else had. And it just takes one. It just takes one. Well, it does. And I think um, it goes to the the notion of that kismet and being, um, you know, I think persevering in your writing quest and writing and having the vision for it and not giving up on it because there is going to be someone out there who at a moment unexpectedly, we'll see, we'll see what it is. We'll see the worth of that. And I think um, that is a message I think I like to say to all writers, um, because I know writing is such a, a tough road and it's a solitary road. And you're, you're in your room and your, your mind and you're alone with your thoughts and a vision. And it feels very audacious to, to write something and put it on the page, what, whatever the medium is, whether it's books or film or whatever medium it is, it feels audacious. And then you have that moment of trepidation of putting it into the world. And the, the good thing is you're not alone because every single writer goes through that. And so that's why it's wonderful to find a supportive group of writers um, because I do think those overnight successes that you hear about, they take a long time. <laughs> yeah, 20 years to an overnight success. <laughs> and I say that to every single writer because it's like, you know, that quest for fame can't be your quest. It has to be the work and the vision and wanting to express yourself. And that success will come when it's meant to. I love that. I love that. And you really are this visionary, you know, champion of writers. And I have to commend your instincts because your instincts, my gosh, I mean, that track record of all these books you've landed on the New York Times bestseller list. Talk to me about how you came into the world of publishing, your love of books, and how you found this path. Sure. Well, I think probably like most people who gravitate towards the creative fields. Um, for me, my my book, my my childhood was spent in a book. My nose was always in a book, and I think that's because the a, a book can transport you into these other places. And I had a wonderful childhood. I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, and it was, you know, a, a university town. And I grew up down the street from uh, Emily Dickinson's house. The, wow. And I used to kind of look at her house when I would go by and think, wow, um, you know, I, I'm in the, in the, the, the path of giants. <laughs> Maybe I'll be the bell of Amherst too someday. Um, but I, I think that what attracted me to, to words was that it could transport you. So my, my nose was always in a book and I always wanted to write and be in the world of writers and be in the world of ideas. And really, as soon as I could, I went to the place that I thought was the Mecca of that. And right after college, I went to New York. <laughs> Because to me, like there was nothing on earth, like what could happen in my mind in New York and that it would be a place where there would be 
people striving and creating and the energy to, to make things that matter. And um, I think that by and large, that was true. And I mean, I think um, New York, when I, when I got there um, was a time of a lot of fun and excitement in the publishing world. It was, there were big personalities and big characters and big books. And, and I was like, I'm going to be a part of this. Mm. And what was like your first job when you got there? Well, my first, I, I had, my first job was actually in women's magazines as at Good Housekeeping. And I, it kind of took a segue, kind of a, not a segue, but that was my first job. And it was actually, I would call it my graduate school because it, it, I was a, in the fiction books department, perfect. And then I was a staff writer, perfect. And it really gave me an education on, you know, writing succinctly, writing to an audience, thinking about an audience, which, you know, I wasn't in my garret writing my, my poems. I was writing for someone who's going to read it and what do they want to read and what do they want to hear? And, and after a while, I just felt that um, being in the magazine world felt very market researched. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I wanted a bigger, bigger scope of creativity. And of course I always loved books. So my, my first job in book publishing was at Scribner's. Yes. And it was, a crazy wonderful thing because am I right in remembering that Max Perkins was at Scrivener's? Max Perkins was of course before me, please. That's all we know. <laughs> Legendary Max Perkins was at Scrivener's. <laughs> but when when I got there, Scrivener's was actually in the Scrivener's building on Fifth Avenue, which was long, it's long gone. It became a Sephora, it became a Benetton. I don't know what it is now. But at that time, it was a bookstore and the offices were above it. And it was very romantic to my mind as a, as a young publishing person because they did keep the office of Maxwell Perkins. And he was the famous editor for Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Edith Wharton and all like these luminaries. And so to me, it was like, I, I arrived in this, this, this rare wor world and you could take a peek into the office, which they kept it was all wood paneled and whatnot. But my most exciting time for me at that was um, one day at lunchtime, I was able to go up into the attic of the building where the old files were. And they let you go up there and just like, imagine like, actual physical files, filing cabinets filled with, you know, ancient letters from all of these authors. And I'm like, oh looking through the files. I want to see this movie right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I was like so excited. And I found Edith Wharton's file. And to me, she was one of the, the heroes of my, my, my writing. I love the house of mirth. And I just thought she was a very modern writer for a very old writer. Um, anyway, so I'm digging through her file and I'm pulling out a letter. And the, th the thing that got me was, it was a letter of complaint. And she's like, 
where's my advertising? And why aren't they advertising my book more? And I'm like, oh my gosh, she was like a real life person. And she really cared about things in the world. And she wanted her book advertised like all my other authors did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was like, it was just like this moment of recognition of past coming together with my present wow. and the sort of sense of writers as alive beings who also become legendary. And they're different from each other on some level. And it was something that I still think about because I think when I work with writers today, I'm working with a real live person and we don't know if their works are going to be the classic works for a hundred years from now, but their hope is that you're writing classic works, that you're writing works that endure. And Edith Wharton didn't know her work was going to endure. She wants more advertising. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. If you write to the ages, you know, you don't necessarily know if you're going to live to see your glory days. You know, we all hope to see that while we're alive, but it's not necessarily the case. I mean, sometimes people get discovered posthumously. I mean, I know that really happened for even uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who is more celebrated after his death and during his life. I mean, he got to be friends with the king and stuff like that. But, you know, as a gay man, you know, and he was not part of the in-group. He didn't get to paint the Sistine Chapel. I know he had a lot of, you know, lamenting over that. And it's like you said earlier, you can't control you can't control the outcome. You know, so if your goal is fame, you're just going to be disappointed, but you can control the work and your love of the work and your devotion to the craft. And it becomes all about the work and then the work becomes its own reward. And then you can release it and return to the work and the nourishment that's in that for you. But we, yeah, we all want more advertising. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Hi, Kaya, like the thing but, that I, I'm oh, sorry. File, your ad scribners. <laughs> and, and this puts you on a path, it sounds like. It did. It put me on a path back into book publishing. And I found it fascinating, all the aspects of it, from working in the words to the, the notion of uh, the business of publishing and also the marketing of authors. And so my career kind of meandered through all of those aspects of it. I uh, did a stint in book publicity. Um, I became a marketer. Um, and all the way I, I was growing, um, my jobs were elevating, but I also felt that I wanted to know everything about what, what makes this business tick and what makes, um, as a business, the sort of that melding between art and commerce. And, you know, I think sometimes publishing, like many businesses, get a bad rap mm. because we, we kind of look at them and say, why aren't they all about the art? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's the same in Hollywood. It's, this is totally the same. It's like, you know, and then there's the, then it's a business and you have to remember that. You have to remember that. And I think it's an eye opener and it was an eye opener for me. And I remember at one point, so I, I went from Scribner's and then I went to five different publishers and they were all different. I was at McGraw-Hill. I was at St. Martin's Press. I was at Workman Publishing and um, I was at um, Macmillan. And I remember at one point along the way, they various publishers would bring in various consultants 
to talk about like, what could we be doing better and how could we make more money and all of this. Um, and the first time I realized that melding of art and commerce was this consultant came in and he said, well, um, you should just be publishing bestsellers. Duh, <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, that means that you know that a widget is a widget is a widget and you're producing widgets and every widget is going to come along that down the road. I mean, that would also and, and make a, a bestseller. I feel that every exec would have a 100% home run instinct on every single book that they bought. That's tough. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the meaning is that many, many books come into the world that um, may be very commercially viable and become bestsellers. And, but it's kind of like, I think in the, um, in the acting business where like, maybe what is it like 2% or Brad Pitt, everybody else are working actors. Um, you know, 2% might be the big bestsellers, but everybody else can be working writers. Yeah. And so from my takeaway was how do I make a business of working writers and how do I make a business happen so that the publishing company is a business and the writers themselves um, are a business. And so for me, that's was sort of my journey. And, and, it, and it, it came to fruition when I ended up working at HarperCollins and they kind of lured me from New York, which I never thought I would ever leave the New York Mecca of publishing. But the, um, they lured me to the West Coast and I was very lucky and glad that I did leave and go there because I think it opened my mind to the, the notion of how there, there's brilliant thinking all over the world. There's brilliant writers, there's brilliant business people. And there is, a, of course, that sense in the West Coast of open and maverick thinking. And for me at that company, I was able to be a more maverick thinker. And it was very, very creative for me. But so I became a pub, an associate publisher and then a publisher. And as a publisher, you're kind of looking at the top of the whole business. And to me, that was the, a very fulfilling role because I, I got to propel careers but also make sure the business hummed. So love that. Explain that just for a moment in case anyone listening doesn't really understand that a publisher is a person inside of that publishing house. Tell us a little bit about the inner workings of that. Sure. So in, in the publishing company, there's a lot of different roles. And um, as man management leadership roles and the the, there's kind of the, the corporate management, which would be, you know, the corporate boards or the chairman, but then running the individual publishing units is an actual person who is called a publisher. And that person's job is to, it's sort of left brain, right brain. Hmm. It's being the person who greenlights the projects. So, I mean, ultimately, it's a committee that greenlights the projects, but it comes to the desk of the publisher to give the final nod. And that person has to have an instinct about 
what the market is interested in, um, the quality of the work, um, the platform of that writer. They have to have an instinct about it because in truth, publishing is a very instinctual business. Mm-hmm. But that also they're the, the, the business manager of that business. So they need to make sure that the business actually performs. And so when I was a publisher, I used to say that I was like a a venture capitalist because I would look at whoever I was going to green light in terms of their projects as each little individual investments, individual businesses that had to grow on their own and then contribute to the whole business. Yes. So very similar in um, TV and film for develop. That's the development exec role and the development execs are reading the scripts, deciphering, you know, what, which ones are appropriate for the market, which ones they think will do well, whether it's streaming or at the box office and, you know, and ultimately which ones they love, which ones, you know, bring out a song in their heart and some level, whether you love horror or you love, you know, adventure rom-coms, you know, it's, Oh, this one made me really excited. I'm so, I see it. You know, and I imagine that for you, there has to be that too, that love of like, oh, I really believe in this one. I think it's absolute. I mean, I think you have to, you have to, to be in these businesses, you have to have passions. Mm -hmm. It's a passion business. It's a relationship business. It's a passion business. It's also a personality business. (laughs) 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 And it's always filled with very big personalities, which is interesting and fun and crazy and all of those things. Um, but I think you have to have passion. And so for me, my passions changed over time as I was going through my, my journey through publishing. And at one point my passions were for like the romance genre. And I actually ghost wrote a romance novel and, you know, wanted to be in that like world. And then it changed to wanting to be in more sort of serious literature. And then it changed to be more in the the, um, nonfiction, what I would call sex and shopping books. And then over time, what I started to realize for me was that I I really loved that what I would call prescriptive or narrative nonfiction. And that in the spiritual or personal growth categories, And that was the category I was lucky enough to work in when I was at Harper. And it was a perfect melding for me of what my heart loved and what my business wanted me to produce. So um, you do have to have that. And if you would look in the publishing world, you'll see there's definitely silos. There are people who only do cookbooks. There are people who only do romance novels. There are people who only do, you know, thrillers. There are people who only do political books. It's because it's their passions and they can bring the right lens to that project. And they can also be in the right zeitgeist for that. That makes so much sense. That specialty, you have to have that specialty, passion and love. You know, I managed bookstores uh, for a while in my 20s. I managed Malibu Books and Company for a couple of years in my early 20s. And it was like maybe my favorite job ever. So great. I loved it so much. And um, that way, you remember the era of crown books, crown books put mm-hmm. our little right. indie out of business. And uh, I ended up moving to Dutton's, which was a legendary mm-hmm. bookstore um, on San Vicente Boulevard in Los Angeles. And we just had the most incredible um, 
the, the people who were there, it was almost like we had the Great Library of Alexandria because the people who were there were like world experts on their sections, even just the staff. You know, they're, they're just these incredible experts on film, television, on cookbooks, you know, fiction. They, it was people would come in from all over the world just to talk to the staff, you know, collect reads, buy Christmas gifts. It was always uh, so meaningful. Hey, I want you to tell us about some of your accomplishments especially while you were at Harper. Tell us what you're most proud of. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, I, I'm proud of, I've been very blessed, I have to say, but I mean, I'm, I'm, of course I was proud to find you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'm very proud of that. Um, And I was very proud, um, to, on the business side to, to build that business up from a business that had not had bestsellers. Um, to business when I left that had these many, many bestsellers. And they they don't happen by accident. They happen by, I would say, instinct and work and perspiration and strategy and tactics and the right authors at the right time, at the right moment, all of that. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, you know, I, I was able to work with some true visionaries there like Deepak Chopra and Marianne Williamson. But I think one of the points of pride for me was um, when I, I I was the person with crystals on my desk there. My boss at the time said, well, you really like this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I really do. <laughs> so he, he was wonderful. And he's like, well, I think you should develop an imprint that sort of really caters to this kind of spirituality was that mark was mark your boss then? that was mark and mark. yay and um and so i was able to develop this imprint within the imprint called harper elixir and that was very exciting to me um and within that imprint it was really um in this sort of esoterica which i love but esoterica meets mainstream and so I was able to publish um, the Wild Unknown Tarot and bring that from a work that had been, you know, huge success as a self-published work, and then bring it into our fold and make it the first New York Times bestseller for a tarot book. And I was very proud of that. I um, love that. And it's so beautiful. Her art is related. I'm sure we had to spend 20 years designing all those amazing cards. It's so stunning. It and and so that overnight success, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and so well deserved. And but you know, and I I also was very proud to work with Dr. Alejandro Younger and his book Clean, which also um, introduced our whole division into the wellness. Um, genre. And so I, I've had some, some lovely 
lovely people that I've worked with and I've got to work with. But I, I have to just tell you one thing, because I think it's related to your um, entertainment world. When I was a, um, I was thinking about books that are either films or books that I've worked on that are films or books, you know, celebrity books. And, and um, so one book that came to mind was I worked on Donnie Brasco and that book, um, which is, is older now, but it became a film, but it um, was such an interesting thing to be on my end of a book in which there was this mafia hit out on this FBI agent. And it was really true. No. And so here I was, little publishing girl, didn't think I was going into a dangerous profession at all. <laughs> um, so I, I really Joe, want to see this movie. <laughs> Joe Stone, who was Donnie Brasco, he would come to our office to meet with me and everybody in the office would clear out. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. My life on to come by like all these secret ways and passageways and routes and whatnot. And then when I, at that point, I was uh, a publicist. I was the publicist on the book. And I had to do all the publicity for the book from, from a secret location. And then later on, of course, it became this big film. And I think just these moments in where your life is tied to an author whose life is tied to a film, a book, and, you know, your little role in it. And, you know, it's sort of my little story of my little role in that. And, you know, I just think as you, in your business, as you're creating these things, there's going to be a lot of people who have their little fingers in it and they'll have memories of those campaigns or that book or that project that they take with them. Oh, absolutely. It's so true. And, you know, I've been working on the adaptation of my novel as well. So maybe we'll end up getting that out into the world. I love it. (laughs) It's such a joy. And these things, they have a life and a timing of their own that we can't control that's beyond us. And when it's meant to hit, it's meant to happen. It will. I'm so curious about The Alchemist because I don't think we've seen a movie for that. And I know that was a book that you were part of at uh, Harper, weren't you? Yes, I was. Um... You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It was, um, I, I, I think at various times, there's been various people who've wanted to develop it. I don't know why it hasn't come to fruition. I think at one point there was a Lawrence Fishburne connection to it. Um, but for The Alchemist, I think, again, it's such an interesting story because that book, um, had a hard journey in its own way. I mean, obviously it's brilliant, but not everyone, not people, people don't always see the brilliance of something at the start. And I wasn't there at the company at the time it was acquired, but I understand that it only slipped through by like one vote. Oh, wow. That, you know, it was like, what? it's kind of this parable and how will we market it and what will we do with it? You know, because publishing people have to think like, how are we going to find the audience? For that? Well, 
And when I got to the company, the book had been kind of a cult favorite, but not a bestseller yet. And so it was my goal <laughs> to help make it a bestseller. And um, one of my goals was to get it on Oprah. And um, I remember at the time I used to go, I was the director of publicity when I first joined and I would go to Chicago, meet with the Oprah people. And I'm like, please, <laughs> please have me out. Please, it's brilliant. Your people, it's brilliant. Um, you know, and it took a lot of no's, no's, no, no, no. Until one day Oprah finally was like, oh, this is brilliant, you know? And so it, it, again, going back to perseverance and a lot of people whose fingers are in the pot, stirring things up. And then eventually it, you know, Oprah did interview him and it did become a bestseller and now it's perpetual bestseller and, you know, well-deserved. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was just thinking of Shantaram as you were talking, which was another one of those, you know, cult favorite uh, spiritual books set in India that we passed around. And even when I was a development exec at Inferno, uh, there was a team of us who knew, I think at the time, Johnny Depp had the rights. And we were like, oh my God, we've got to, Shantaram has to happen, has to happen. And there was, you know, producers coming through and uh, all of us development execs at various companies were always picking up the phone going, does he still have the rights? Is there a script yet? What's <laughs> happening with it? Um, and I just heard that it's, I think it's coming out next year. I don't, I haven't even looked it up on IMDb yet, but someone just rang me and said, hey, Shantaram is finally happening. And that's like, okay, wait, if you go back, okay, so maybe 18 years to... <laughs> And I, <laughs> looking at 20, make that film or series, whatever they're making out of it, it's going to be really cool. <laughs> it takes so long sometimes. And it makes me think of like, and, and you were involved in this in the way of the peaceful warrior. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like, so I worked with Dan on I his, his I next that, Yeah. That book was one of my recommendations because I loved it so much. And he really wanted to make uh, in his heart, he really wanted to make movies that crossed over between spiritual and mainstream. And it's so hard to do, you know, to find one that's going to cross over to the mainstream. The Celestine Prophecy did not. Um, so we were looking and I said, I think, you know, I read this book a while ago called Peaceful Warrior. I think it would be really great mainstream project. And when Billy reached out, Nick Nolte already had the rights and I think he already had the script. Uh, so it just, it was a really cool project that came together. What were you doing on your side with Peaceful Warrior and Millman? Well, well actually, um, I didn't work on that book. I worked on his next book, oh, The Journey from Socrates. Yeah. And, but um, I have a, a funny Dan Millman story. And this is what, one of the things that I truly love about being in publishing and being with creatives is that you meet such interesting people. So Dan came to our office and I, I don't know if you know, but he's also um, a, a, a gymnast and, and very, very, very into physical fitness. Yeah. I mean, that's the essence of Peaceful Warriors. His life as a gymnast from, you know, the college campus. So he comes to, to our office. Do a handstand on your desk or something? <laughs> You're nodding. Wait, you're nodding. <laughs> yes. He came to the office and we're all in the conference room and picture like a bunch of like mm, publishing people in our little suits or whatever. And in comes Dan and he jumps onto the conference room table and does a you know, full on body press up, you know, handstand 
and he holds it there for like five minutes. I'm like, okay, into the story. I, I, was <laughs> I mean, I was absolutely <laughs> joking. That is a rock star move. I can't believe he really did that. It had his attention then, huh? For sure. For sure. So <laughs> funny people, funny, creative people. <laughs> I love that. That was a fun day at the office. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, had an, I had another time, uh, uh, another Houston Smith, who was a great oh, yeah. religion scholar. And he did the book called World's Religions. And he was an elderly man when I met him. But another office moment in which he came in and did this most beautiful blessing on our whole staff at the, at the table. And it was really his last blessing before he passed. And so, you know, you just have these moments or I've had these moments, which are, are wonderful. Oh, I love that. That's so beautiful and memorable. Tell us about what you're doing now. Yes, I know you have your own company now and working uh, on your own. I'm so curious how, what is, what led to it and what you've been enjoying about doing this. Oh, thank you. Well, I do. I have my own company and I, I think it is, it, it happened in a way that was somewhat organically because um, I left HarperCollins and I thought, well, what do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> and, you know, and, and sometimes you have these moments where you can, well, I think always you have these moments in life where you, you plateau and then you're, you're at that moment and you say, well, what, what's my next rise? What do I really want to do in this great life? This wonderful, precious life that I have, that we all have. And I started to really think about what was it through my whole career um, the many authors and the many businesses that I really loved. And I really realized that I just love working with the writers. And it actually doesn't have to be writers, but experts who have a mission and who have, they have a sense of their own purpose and need to articulate that. And they need to articulate that in a book. And I have for the past five years now, been working with a large variety of people who, um, from people who are like at Pacifica Graduate Institute to a QVC personality who I just worked with and sold her book. So um, what I do is I work with writer and we kind of look at their, their vision, their mission. And I think that what I bring is all my experience in business, as well as purposeful communication and bring that together to look at their brand and also their mission. And it's like, well, where would you like to be in five years? And what do you want to be talking about? And how do we get there? And what kind of book is that? Or is it a book? Is mm -hmm. it something else? Mm -hmm. And it may be a series of things. It may be a book. It may be a film. It may be a video. It may be a series of things. And then how do we get to that point, which is that overnight success point that you're on that stage and you're talking about whatever it is that really fuels you and your purpose and your mission. And so I work together on brand in that way with my own 
my own secret sauce. And then I work with them on the writing and the weeds of the writing. And then I've also become a literary agent. And I didn't expect to do that. It's kind of, it just unfolded. Um, but as I started to work with different writers, they asked me to sell their books. Mm. And so it's been a, an interesting process of doing that. And I also do book marketing and publishers have hired me to help authors and sort of hold their hands in the runway up to their book um, that the moment that the book is on sale. So those are the things I do. I love that. I, I was thinking as you were talking that for so many writers, the journey is almost like tunneling to the throne room. You're just <laughs> so head down, you know, I've got this mission, but it's like, it's every feels dark. <laughs> what's going, what's happening? Where am I going? And then, you, you know, when you finally emerge with a book, with a script, with a film that's coming out, you know, that's being produced, it's so exciting. Those moments where we get to, to share it. And for you strategically, I know one of your um, expertise is focusing on the positioning you know, the positioning of how, how do you get that particular book to be in the right place and find its audience? Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think finding audience is so key. And it is um, next week, what I'm focusing on for the students in the entertainment business school is building their audience. Yes. Um, and I, I, I firmly agree with that. Um, because there is a difference, particularly today in the world we live in today, um, <clears throat> which is so noisy and so filled with free content and so filled with information that what's your, what's your spot? Like, what's your place in that? And, you know, when, when I, at the beginning of our discussion, when I was talking about Emily Dickinson and she sat in her little Amherst house writing her poems. You really can't do that today mm. in the same way. You can, but chances are you're not going to find your way. <laughs> she was published in her lifetime though, was she? I don't, I don't think she was. Yeah. But I think the, the, the point is that one of the things that one of my learnings is what you're just talking about what made all the 120 plus bestsellers that I've worked on is that it, it's not just sitting in the garret writing and tunneling and writing what you want to say, mm -hmm. but it's also thinking about who are you going to say it to? And actually it can't just be everybody. It can't be, I'm going to throw it out there and somebody will find it. No, it has to be, I have a very specific idea. I have a very specific purpose and I have a very specific point of view that I'm going to tell to a very specific person. And then you, you, you build your public persona to attract that person. And all of that has to be baked into the actual product. And that's not to say the creative process shouldn't be wild and creative and, you know, but then I say, okay, you do that first draft done. Now you come back in and you think about what is this with discipline? What is the discipline of taking it through from start to finish so that it actually speaks to a person and they're going to use it or they're going to read it and they're going to love it. Um, so it can't just be self-indulgent. Can't just be, 
you know, my poems about me. <laughs> Nobody cares. You know? Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> and, you know, I know that's harsh. I know it's harsh. <laughs> that we're all so much more interesting to ourselves than we are to other people when you think about it. And unless you're Brad Pitt, nobody's buying your, your autobiography. Right. right. Meaning publishing as a business can't, can't indulge that. They need to know who is your audience. So publishing a memoir from Brad Pitt, they know who that audience is. Publishing a memoir from Joe Blow, who is the audience for that? Sure. So if you're going to write a memoir, you, you have to make clear that you have a way of marketing that and you have an audience you're speaking to. You're also really speaking about intention. Mm -hmm. the, the through line of intention from your craft straight to the audience that it's meant for so that that through line is super clear and it's not vague. Yes, I love that. From the get-go. Yes. I sometimes coach people to think about if they're really confused about, well, I'm not exactly sure, you know, who, who it would be for a lot of, um, writers. It, sometimes your audience is your younger self. You're writing the thing you wish that you could have read or seen on screen 10, 20 years ago that wasn't there for you when you needed it. In which case, then you know who your audience is because there's so many other people out there like you who feel that way. Um, and you can just write for them. Yeah, I think that's a great exercise to write to your younger self or to write to someone that you know in your demographic. Well, that's a good point too, like an avatar thinking of yes. your person. So, so like well, you, yes. mm -hmm. like almost like letter. I think I thought of letters to a young poet as you were thinking about that, that Rilke um, to, it, it's so beautiful because here's these letters, you know, from this legendary writer to another young writer saying, here are the things to keep in mind. And that book has been, you know, held, held to the hearts of so many writers over so many decades because it's like, well, he wrote it for me. And even though those letters were for the one person he was writing them for, the, it has rippled through time for so many other young writers who needed that, that, those words. Yes, very well said. I think that's right. And, you know, I encourage anyone who's writing, it's this is like the left brain, right brain thing. You know, as you're writing, then also do that exercise. And I do it with all my writers. Who is that audience? And what is that avatar? And I go through that. And I think that it's a very worthy exercise because it gives you clarity. And then you start to realize, oh, it is that young poet, or it, it is, you know, any, any avatar that you might want to think about. Absolutely. Um, and it's the young mom, the queer teen, the, um, the aspiring business person. There's so many different, you know, the avenues uh, where people are, are searching. They're, they're searching for some, they're searching for their answers. They're searching to feel like they belong. And so many of us found that we belong through literature. And also through screen too. Yeah. And I think to your point about writing for the other so that it's where they belong. <laughs> so it, it is expressing yourself and ex maybe expressing what you might have wished, but at the end, it's going to land on somebody else. 
And so that's the duality of it. And keeping that in your heart as you're writing or filming or, or creating, because there is that duality. And I always think that um, for me or for any editor, like I'm the first best reader, meaning I read from that perspective. How is this sitting on me? Is it speaking to me? Is it hitting me? Do I get it? Does it mean anything to me? Because I think, and this will sound crazy, but I really believe this, that buying anything, books, music, it's a very film. It's a selfish act. I buy a book because it's going to be something for me. <laughs> it's going to help me. It's going to educate me. It's going to entertain me. It's going to delight me. It has to be about me, the reader. Mm. And so that going back to the platform or the audience, that's the audience. I love that. Words of wisdom, Claudia Buto. Thank you so much for being with us today. If people are looking for you, where do they find you? Um, you can find me on my website, uh, redravenstudio.com and contact me there. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.